together, together today's services. In, in one way, the message of what is in this passage is what we've been talking about all morning, that things might go from bad to worse or go in a direction we don't expect, but God is still the giver, sustainer of life. He's still good, and we can hope in that. And we see that so clearly in this story. So before we look at it, let's pray. Please join with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you that there is hope. We thank you that in this life, though it may be rocky, though it may be shaky, through all seasons, you know what's happening and you're good. We can trust you. So help us to see that and just pray you'll speak clearly to us this morning. In your name, amen. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you're on a plane. You've just had the evening meal. Starting to, everyone's starting to sort of die down and just get to sleep, everything's getting relaxed. And then that announcement comes on. This is your captain speaking, it's usually a bit distorted. We're going to experience some turbulence, and usually at that point you stop sort of paying attention, because turbulence, you know what that means. Things are going to get rocky. Now, I've never met anyone that enjoys the experience of turbulence. Some people kind of tolerate it, but, you know, when things get really rocky when sort of the lights flicker, when you're half asleep and you have to wake up, or even when your in-flight entertainment just pauses. You have nothing to do but just sit through this uncertain period of up and down. No one ticks that when they buy their ticket. Yes, I want turbulence. Um, but there is an experience that is like turbulence that people do pay for. Going on a roller coaster. What's the difference? The difference is that no matter how windy and turny, twisty a roller coaster is, there is some sense of, well, this isn't going to, shouldn't fall or break. There is going to be an end. There is some sense of safety and control. In turbulence, when things get bad, people react in maybe kind of three ways. The first way is that they usually downplay the situation. They might think of times when, play, oh, you know, I've been on a plane before. I know what happens at the end. We land. It's going to be okay. Or they just ignore it. They pretend to sleep. Or they freak out. They get agitated. But you don't have the same kinds of responses in general on a roller coaster. Life is a lot like turbulence on a plane. We don't want to admit it, but there's so much in life out of our control. Um, John's already hinted at that. Think about the season, the, the, the extreme weather we've had. Think about what's happening in the health of our community. And then there's the things that we would experience even just by being alive. The potluck of sadness, confusion, relationships up and down, job uncertainty. And so it's natural and right to ask What's going on, and is anyone in control? That is the same thought process and questioning that a character in this story that we're going to read would have. Because the story is all about who's in control of life. God wants us to know that he's in control. And so we've got five ideas, five points we're going to go through. We're going to think through this story. We're going to think about a broken contract, we're going to think about divine dependence. We're going to think about hope and heartbreak. 
a renewed contract, and at last, a final message. So let's think with our first point, a broken contract. This story starts with Israel, the nation of Israel, cutting off their own source of life. Let's look at verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew or rain in the next few years except at my word. The story begins with a severe drought. It seems strange for a story to begin with such a harsh um, action for God to withhold rain from a whole country. And we've just had a pretty dry summer. That wasn't fun. That was bad for the garden. But it's not right to say every drought is some kind of punishment. There's something particular going on here. And who's Ahab? So we need to think about the history of this nation Israel before we get the ball rolling into our story of Elijah. The nation of Israel, they weren't anything special. They were a group of slaves, but then God brought them out of another country and gave them a land to call home. And he had a, a, they entered in a special contract with their God, the God that they called Yahweh, the Lord. He would be their God. They would be devoted to him. And through that special relationship, through that covenant, they would experience life. It's a good deal. We don't like passing up on a good deal. But as time passed, the pressure to ignore this God, Yahweh, just built and built. That nation, Israel, kind of split. And we pick up the story here. So I'm going to read from chapter 16, just before our story starts. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. That's where Elijah's from. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. So if we were original readers of the Hebrew Bible, we're supposed to think this is really, really bad. The nation's leader isn't just following another god. He's building temples and leading people to worship a false god. And who are these gods? Well, Baal and Asherah, they're gods specifically of life, fertility, and prosperity. So this story is set up as a very clear analogy. They're not looking for life in the God who brought them out of slavery. They're looking for life in other places. So after many warnings, Yahweh takes, takes away his provision from the nation of Israel. He's teaching them that he alone is the source of life. No rain means no crops, no livestock. All the things that a nation would take for granted, well, for Israel, they were actually supplied for. They were nourished and cared for by God. This drought would be a strong lesson that the Israelites, 
had cut their connection from spiritual life to their God. And in God's ecosystem, in Yahweh's ecosystem, without spiritual life, there is no life. Okay, so divine dependence, point two. We know this drought's going to be really bad, but what about those who are still devoted to the God Yahweh? Are they going to be spared? Are things going to be easy for them? Well, we're going to see that no matter what will happen, that servants of God will continue to depend on him in everything. Let's look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. Now, the NIV does the translating for us, it says Kerith Ravine, but in the original, it's described as a wadi in Kerith. So a wadi is a place that's a seasonal stream. That means it's not a river, it's not a creek. It might be flowing, it might not, it might just be mud. And this is the place where God has sent Elijah and told Elijah to stay. Can you imagine what that's like? So it's not even that there's no fridge, there's no pantry, There's not a veggie garden. Elijah, every day, every morning and every evening, is waiting from bread, from heaven. Every day is a miracle of God's provision. And yet here, God does provide him with everything that he needs. So Elijah is an example of obedience. And it wouldn't have been easy. I don't like waiting. I don't like uncertainty. And then on top of that is the loneliness. But Elijah still did what Yahweh, his Lord, told him to do. We'll keep reading. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. That was bound to happen. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow to supply you with food. So Elijah went. But how would he have felt at this point? Would he have been anxious and stressed? See, he just went from having little to less. Doesn't look like God is particularly blessing, providing a lot of abundance. And then why go to Sidon? This historically is what we would call Phoenicia. It's another kingdom, a neighboring country. And we have actually met them in the story before. This is where Ahab's wife comes from. This is the country that worships the other gods. This is where these other gods have come from that people are worshipping instead of the Lord God of Israel. So aren't they bad guys? Why would Elijah go there? Well, Elijah does. He obeys. And when he comes to the town gate, he sees a widow gathering sticks. So he calls to her and asks her, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I might have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he he throws her this hospital pass. Give me, please, a piece of bread. Now, the woman's reply isn't particularly a helpful one. I don't have bread. We're on our last... I'm actually gathering sticks for my last piece of bread ever. This is who God sent Elijah to. A woman who has nothing left. But... Elijah says to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me 
from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she, she went away and did what Elijah told her to. A widow with nothing. What's amazing is that what Elijah said came true. And through this, God is glorified. A woman who was an enemy of God's people obeys God and has food provided for her. There wasn't enough for just her and her son, but now there's enough for all three of them, for a whole family to live. And through that experience, they may not have known what happened tomorrow or the next day, but can you see that God is teaching them that if they trust him, then they can have the confidence that God will give them everything they need. So less, and this, this lesson stays true even when the worst things that could happen do happen. That's what happens next. Hope in heartbreak. God is in control even of life itself. I'm going to read from verse 17. Some time later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. He said to Elijah, What have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? This is terrible news. And given the journey that she's been on, it makes sense how she reacts. Wouldn't we have reacted the same as the widow? God, why? That's the question. Did this happen because of some sin? Is it a punishment? And why now? She's just come out of a hard situation. Things seem to get a little bit better, and then there's a sudden change. How will Elijah, the man of God, respond? Let's look at verse 19. Elijah replied, Give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Isn't it interesting that Elijah's first response is to actually share in the widow's grief? He doesn't blame her. He doesn't sort of downplay it and say it's not, it's not too bad. No, he cries out to God and acknowledges this terrible event. But also notice that as he shares in the grief, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't insult God, he doesn't reject God or lose sight of God as in control. See, he still says, Lord, my God. So Yahweh is still Elijah's God. And what happens next is really strange. Okay, so Elijah stretches himself out in the boy three times. He cries out to God. What's going on here? It's odd. It's something that we would find unusual to read. It's something that the original readers would find strange. So in this story, Elijah is God's agent. He's God's representative. We've seen that he's filled with God's power. And we know that God is holy, one of the very first things that God, Yahweh, taught the people of Israel when they left slavery was that they needed to be spiritually clean to interact with him. 
because God is pure and holy, and we humans are not. Now, in this culture of spiritually clean and spiritually unclean, a dead body is a big no-no. If you happen to touch a, body, a dead body in this culture, you were spiritually unclean and had to stay, actually be away from other people. You had to be away until you were made clean before you could even interact with God. But here, the very person who has God's power is the one that is touching the dead body. And it's not just a handshake or poking him in the arm. He's actually getting full contact, and he's doing it three times. So why? It's because Elijah is becoming unclean for the sake of this boy. It's like he's taking on that uncleanness from the boy, putting onto himself so that Yahweh will treat the boy as spiritually clean. He's touching death itself so the boy can have life. And you know what? God answers Elijah's prayer. The boy's life returns to him. And so as a little statement of itself in this story, we see that God is the giver of life itself. The very essence of who lives and who dies is his to command. And the boy's mum, she responds with worship. She says, And then the boy said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. See, before at the beginning, she said, The Lord your God. But her response now is that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord, that's truth. She's speaking in this way because she's experienced firsthand God's power, God's authority, and his mercy. This isn't something she was taught in a catchphrase. This isn't something that's just theoretical. She knows with her whole being that Yahweh, this God, has authority and power. We're at point four, a renewed contract. And so this chapter of the story ends. But there's so many unfinished things. See, it still hasn't rained. Elijah is still living like a fugitive. He's outside his home country. And the Israelites, who were meant to be learning this big lesson, there's no mention at any point that they've had any change in heart. And historically, time passes. The nation of Israel that Elijah was from it became a forgotten nation. It was destroyed. So does that mean that all these promises that their God made were actually on shaky ground? They weren't true? Well, not exactly. We're going to fast forward a couple of hundred years to the life of Jesus. And this guy is strange. See, he's a man who claimed to be the Son of God. And if you look at the book of Luke... In chapter 4, you'll notice a few things. We did this in Switch a couple of weeks ago, which is just fortuitous. It starts with Jesus in the wilderness with no food and water, which kind of reminds us a bit of Elijah. He's depending on God directly. And sort of like Elijah, Elijah has the power over rain. Jesus, the Son of God, has the power over all creation. Elijah was fed bread from heaven. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. 
both believed in the worship of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And so Jesus finishes his time in the wilderness. He goes to his hometown, Nazareth. He joins them for a Sabbath day, their holy day. And he says these words to them. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind. He has set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's he saying? He's saying that he is the fulfillment of God's covenant. He's bringing back the contract that they broke. The same covenant that gave life to the nation of Israel, that's what Jesus' life was going to be all about. And we see that in the way that he lived. He went around healing sick people. He went around bringing people back from the dead. And he was speaking about an eternal kingdom of a hope that's bigger than the life that we experience day to day. And if you follow Jesus' story to the end, then you'll see that for us to be a part of that, he actually took on our uncleanness, our sin, just like Elijah did with the widow's son. He said strange and huge things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, Jesus is saying that he is the giver and sustainer of life. And it's through that that we can have great news in a time of uncertainty. Through death, through illness, though our lives may go from bad to worse, though we may not know what our health will be like tomorrow or what what our job will be in two years' time, we can trust in Jesus as a sustainer of our life. You know what? When Jesus shared this message to his hometown in Nazareth, they couldn't accept that. They couldn't believe that Jesus was someone special. They were just too familiar to see it. And Jesus calls them out on it. He says to them, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a prophet in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And this gets everyone really angry. They want to kill him. See, they couldn't get past the idea of Jesus was the boy they grew up with, or he was Joseph's son. They couldn't see that he was God on earth, and so they couldn't actually be part of God's life-changing, God's life-giving message. And that's a pretty big warning for a lot of us. Many of us who have grown up around Bible stories, who have gone to countless Bible studies, we talk about Jesus a lot, but there is a danger that instead of feeding ourselves spiritual truth, we end up kind of immunizing ourselves against it, making it so that we can't hear Jesus' message clearly. And that's dangerous when life is a lot, like being on a plane. So let's think again how people respond to turbulence, and let's think about how that plays out in life. Okay, so in life, there are times when 
our natural response is to minimize what's going on around us. That can work for some things, you know, oh, it's not so bad, oh, you know, that exam was only worth 5%, and so if I get 2%, then I should be okay. But then in a lot of things, that is unhelpful. It's actually more helpful to recognize when things are serious. You can downplay how bad your health might be, you can downplay how serious your job situation might be, but there are times when, no, you need to accept it's serious. What about ignoring turbulence, pretending that it's not there? Well, that's not going to help either because that's not going to change the situation. And panicking, being afraid, is a natural response, but that also doesn't change the issue of control. It doesn't provide hope. But there is a fourth option. The option is to learn from Elijah that God is the giver and sustainer of life. As we look at his journey throughout this small story, there were plenty of opportunities for him to decide, no, this is terrible. But as we see with 2020 hindsight, God's, Elijah's life, we see that God was in control that there was never a day that Elijah didn't have what he needed. There was never a day when Elijah couldn't say, God is good. It's great news. We live in a time when we do face a lot of uncertainty. But this story tells us that we don't need to know everything, we don't need to control everything, because God controls and knows everything. So as we experience life, as we experience turbulence, may that great news change how we see the world and give us hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message in Elijah. Um, we thank you for the message that we've seen here. Help us to know deeply that you are the Lord God and that the words that Jesus speaks to us are truth. I just pray we won't be overly, overly familiar with that, but that you would shape us and shape our hearts so each day we can be people, faithful servants of you that glorify, glorify your work on earth. We pray this in your name. Amen.